I'm reading out of the book of Acts, chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, and then 14 through 20. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adrumadium, about to sail for the ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. The word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, Trinity Church. Good to see you here this morning. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Beth, for reading God's Word to us. And thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Such great songs, fitting to this passage, but also just encouraging to the heart and the soul. Um, And thank you, Katie, for leading us this morning. Uh, Dana was not feeling well through the week and uh, texted me yesterday and said, I'm not getting any better. I can't be there Sunday. And so he contacted Katie, and Katie graciously stepped in, moved from the piano to lead the team and lead the music this morning. So thank you for using your gifts for God's glory, Katie, leading us today. Appreciate that. Um, those reminders and the songs were just, that's just powerful. I, I don't know, you probably have these moments too, but we sang that first uh, hymn. <clears throat> Beth and I have the advantage some of others of you do too if you're serving in the service to do this twice every Sunday morning. And so we sing it twice and then the second time, sometimes things hit you stronger. We sang that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and came to that place where it says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. What a glorious thought that the Lord Jesus took our sin on himself on the cross, paid the price on our behalf. That's the gospel. And so wonderful that we can be reminded of that. And as long as I've known the Lord through all my years of living, it's still, it's powerful. It still amazes me. It still overwhelms me sometimes that Jesus would love me that much. And I love it that we're moving towards that Easter weekend, just such a glorious weekend in the life and the calendar of the church, right? Where 
And we're back after three years. We get to celebrate our Good Friday service together. So I hope if you can make arrangements in your schedule and be here with us Friday evening on Good Friday. We're actually going to have an extended time of communion together and just enjoying the presence of God and celebrating what He did on the cross. And then on Sunday, to then come back together and celebrate that He didn't stay in the tomb, that He is alive and well and, and interceding for us at the throne of God. And so, blessed day in our lives as Christians to be able to proclaim that loud and clear. We're going to do it outside at the terraces in the morning at 7 a.m., then we're going to come back here in two services and celebrate it and proclaim it right here together. So hope you're looking forward to that special Easter weekend. And this morning, we have an incredible story in Acts 27, and you may be thinking, that's a great story, but what in the world does Paul's shipwreck have to do with me? We're going to find out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this privilege, this honor to come together in your name and to to worship you together, to sing these songs, to hear your word, to study it together. Lord, we, we appreciate this opportunity. And Lord, I thank you that as we proclaim your death and resurrection, we are reminded of the personal impact on us that our sin was paid for. And that our lives are redeemed from from death to eternal life. And we thank you for that reminder again today. We need that encouragement because there are storms in our lives. And so today as we look at this passage, I pray that you would teach us through Paul's experience and that there would be principles that we can grab a hold of for our own lives and our own storms and apply them. I pray, Lord, as I always do, that you would guard my words, help me to rightly, accurately communicate what you would have said and what you would like us to focus on this morning. And then by the power of your Spirit indwelling us and by the power of your living Word in front of us, make those changes in our lives that need to be made for your glory, for our witness, so that we can share in our words and our lives with those who need to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So when Beth and I were in college many, many years ago, we one summer had the opportunity to go on a missions trip with a, some other members of our, of our team, our ministry team, to Jamaica. Now, if you're going to go on a missions trip, Jamaica's a pretty nice place to go. But we were in some of those inner parts. Have you ever been to that island? There's incredible poverty, a lot of need, and we were ministering some of these little churches, little villages. But one afternoon, we had had an opportunity to just take some time away, and our director arranged for us to go out on a a sailboat large one that included our whole team and then a, a crew. And so they took us along the, down along the coast, just beautiful scenery. We ended up in a little bay and we jumped off the boat. We're swimming and got back on, coming back. And on the way back, it just, the conditions seemed very different. There was a lot more wind. We were moving a lot faster. And all of a sudden, as we're going along, the boat begins to tip like this. Still moving fast still cutting through the water, but we're just, we're just tipping. And so we're not used to sail, and so we begin to hold on, hold on to something. Wait, what's going on? And as we got faster and tipped further, we started to get 
scared, our, those of us on our team. So the girls were, started screaming. The guys started yelling, which is what guys do, which is really screaming, but it doesn't sound manly to scream, so you yell. And we're just, we're just, we don't know, we feel like this thing's going to tip over. There's no way we can continue at this angle. And in the middle of all that, I look to the back of the boat, and I see the crew. The Jamaicans are back there. They're kicked back, and they didn't have a care in the world. In fact, they were laughing at us for being so frightened in the moment. And all of a sudden, I realized, wait a minute. The boat's supposed to do this. This is right. They're not worried. And if they are not worried, I don't have to be worried. Their calm gave me calm. And that's what we see in our passage this morning from the Apostle Paul. So if you would please take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 27, your phone, your device, whatever you have with you to follow along. There are some Bibles in some of the, uh, below some of the chairs in the auditorium as well if you want to find one to follow along. Acts chapter 27. We're on the next to last chapter of the book of Acts. Next week, Nick will bring our message in Acts 28 that will wrap up our series in the book of Acts. It's been a wonderful exploration into the early life of the church. And in this this story, it just is really one of those amazing stories of the Bible. Paul finds himself in this desperate situation at sea, and Beth kind of left the story right in the middle of the chapter at the point of great desperation. Remember that God had told Paul that he was going to testify about him in Rome. So Paul knows this. And so he's on his way, but surely Paul had to be wondering, and we wonder as we read the story, if, God, if you're taking Paul to Rome, why not give him clear sailing? Why not let him just have you know, the right kind of current and the right winds and just take him easily to Rome? That's where you want him to be. Take him to Rome. That's kind of our human mindset, right? But that's not at all what happens. And my thought is, if God intended for Paul to testify in Rome, why is the ship and Paul in peril? Well, let me sh- summarize the story, kind of show you where, where this is going on. I've put a map up on here. This, for me, this always kind of helps to see the geography. So remember, last few weeks, we've been down here in Caesarea. Paul's been in prison now for three years in Caesarea. He appealed to Caesar, and so he's headed to Rome. Here's Rome, way up over here. And so finally, Festus, the Roman governor, sends him on his way. He takes him with a few other prisoners. He gives him into the care of this uh, Roman centurion by the name of Julius. He later opened some orange shops. You've maybe heard of him because of that, you know. <laughs> orange Julius. So he, they, Julius takes them. They go up here. The small boat at first. It's a small boat. They come up here just up the coast a little bit to Sidon. Paul meets with some other believers there. And the centurion is already showing him a little bit of favor. Gives him some time off. Uh, shore leave, I guess it would be here. They get back on, they sail this way up to the south of Asia Minor, and they land here in Myra. And that's an important port city because now they've got to get on a ship that will take them all the way to Italy. The little one won't do. They need something bigger. And so the Roman, he's in charge, the centurion's in charge. He finds this grain ship from Alexandria, Egypt, way down here somewhere, and it's on its way to Italy. So they board passage. The centurion, the Roman soldiers, all the prisoners, they get on board this grain ship. And they begin heading out. And as they're coming around this way, I don't really know if they were planning to go through here or whatever, but they, they hit weather. And, and the, it's not favorable. It slows them down. And they end up down here on the south side of the island of Crete, where Paul's been before, by the way. And 
They land at Fair Havens, this little port town of Fair Havens. Now, it's because time's been lost, it's already late in the season, and the wintertime is not a good time for sailing in the Mediterranean, back in those days at least, and so they... Paul comes to them and he says, we need to stay here. If, you, if we sail any further, it's going to be disastrous. Well, the centurion and the boat captain get together and they decide this is not a good port city. Now, I don't know. It does, the Bible doesn't tell us why. You know, maybe there weren't enough taverns for the sailors or maybe the lodging wasn't good. There was enough entertainment. I don't know. But they wanted to go a little further west to this end, to Phoenix, another port town that was more suitable to winter in. And so... Against Paul's advice, they wait for the weather to clear. It seems like a nice day, and they take off, planning to just go along the southern shore of Crete to the port of Phoenix. And that's when everything breaks apart. That's when all of a sudden a northeaster comes across, and Beth described this in verses 14 to 20, comes across probably over the mountains of Crete, pushes them southward and westward, away from shore, away from safety. Can you imagine this? Now, just put yourself in this place and and what you just heard Beth read in verses 14 to 20. Imagine being on this grain ship. Hurricane force winds suddenly are pushing you away from shore, driven further from that coastline where the protection could be, away from your destination of Phoenix. Can you imagine it being so bad that the sailors begin to, to wrap ropes around, they pull the lifeboat on, They put ropes around to hold the hull of the ship together. They're dropping anchor to keep from being driven all the way. And it says to to Serta, which was somewhere down here on the northern coast of Africa, they were afraid it was going to drive them all the way down here and they'd hit these sandbars. And so they're dragging these anchors. They throw the cargo overboard. They throw the tackle overboard so they can't fish any longer. They haven't seen the sun or the stars for days on end, and at this point at verse 20, they've given up hope of being rescued. That's the scenario for our passage this morning. And here's Paul. Remember last week, in chapter 26, he voiced a powerful testimony giving the gospel in the courtroom of Festus. Now he's on a ship that's in danger on the sea, and we see him living out that faith that he talked about in the chapter before. I want you to see how Paul lived out his faith in the strength of the storm. That's chosen that as the title for today's message, strength in the storm. And I don't just mean Paul's strength. I mean God's strength shown through Paul and how it affected the other people on that ship. Here's our first principle for today. Your faith can be a source of encouragement to others. Your faith can be a source of encouragement to other people around you. You know, I think if I'd been Paul at this point in the journey, I would have been tempted to say to the centurion or the captain, I told you guys, I warned you not to leave port. If we'd have just stayed in Fair Havens, we wouldn't be going through all this stuff. Now, when everybody on the ship dies, it's not my fault, it's your fault. That would have seemed like an appropriate response, but that's not what Paul says. I want to pick it up in verse 27, 20, 21. He does chide them for not listening to him, but look how he, he describes this. Verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and he said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. 
Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he said, just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, pause for a minute there. I want you to see what Paul's doing. He gets this promise from God. An angel appears to him. Now, the tendency would be to kind of keep it to yourself, wouldn't it? You have a vision like that, a visitation like that, a message, a promise. The promise is to Paul, he could have just kept that to himself. Oh, good. Okay, God's promised we're going to get through this. At least I know that. No, he doesn't keep it to himself. He shares it. He shares it as encouragement with the rest of the ship. And I love the way Paul describes his relationship with God. See, most of the people on that ship did not know his God. So he says, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Now, he, does, he knows that most everybody else on that ship does not have faith. And Luke and Aristarchus are with him. They may have been the only other believers on the ship. And so he says, this God whom I serve and to whom I belong, let me tell you about my faith in him. He doesn't expect anybody else to have faith. He knows they don't have faith, but he wants them to know about his faith. And maybe in the, this moment, they, maybe they had been calling out to their gods to no avail. Perhaps they'd been calling out to the Greek god Poseidon, who was the god of the seas and the storms, and but they would have believed caused these storms. But instead, Paul tells them, my God has graciously promised to give me the lives of everyone on this ship. Do you see that what's going on here? It's, this is the grace of God to Paul, but through Paul to everybody else on board. Even the way that's worded, how Luke describes that, that God says to Paul, I am giving you, Paul, the lives of everyone on this ship. God's grace shown through Paul in this storm. And here I think Paul's willingness to voice his own faith in God is what bolstered, began to bolster the courage of others on that ship. We're going to see that continue. But remember who we've got on the ship here. Probably Egyptians from Alexandria. That's where the ship started and brought its grain. And so it probably, probably the crew was from there. We know we've got Roman soldiers. We know we've got other prisoners from who knows where. This is a real mixed group that Paul is speaking to here. And they all heard Paul's faith. They heard about his confidence in God. Sometimes our witness is not so much a gospel presentation. Sometimes it is, and we need to be ready for that. And that was our point last week, right? In Acts 26, we saw Paul sharing his testimony, sharing the gospel, very clear. But now in this moment, Paul doesn't stay in the middle of the storm. Wait a minute, let me, I want to give you the gospel here. No, he shares with them what he's heard from his God. He shares his faith. He gives them hope. And in that moment, his faith is being lived out in a crisis. And that's vital. You see, for us, sometimes it's the word that we share, but sometimes it's living our lives in belief of what we say we know. The faith that we believe, it's lived out. When we see how, when others see how we put our faith in God's promises, we're speaking the gospel to them in real life. 
You know, this past Wednesday, some of you from Trinity here attended the celebration of life service for L.A. Francine. Mo and L.A. have been a part of Trinity for many, many years, and I just put a picture of the program and her picture on it that was used on Wednesday. One of the statements in the service on, on Wednesday that pro- impacted me the most was the fact that Ellie's character and her love for children, she spent many years in, in school system and teaching kids and loving on kids, that that in her was born out of a life of pain, out of the trials and difficulties she went through. And if you don't know Mo and Ellie, and many of you don't because they've been down and coming for the last couple of years, and if you've come into Trinity recently, you may have never had the chance to meet Mo and Ellie, but... Ellie lost both of her parents before, by the time she turned 13 years old. From that point on, she was raised by someone else in the family, I believe it was. And then when she and Mo were married, they had three sons. Two of their sons died in childhood from health issues, one at age four, one at age, age 13. That's, that's a lot of pain. Those are severe trials. That's a major storm. And what I see in Ellie, what those of you that know her have seen, and what was testified at her memorial service was that her faith in and through those storms and that pain has brought encouragement and faith and hope to hundreds of other people. That was testified to at her service. And that probably includes some of us, and it includes me, and maybe many of you right here. The impact is the gospel lived out in her life in the midst of storms. And that's what we see in Paul, and that can be true of us as well. You see, sometimes God allows us to go through the storms of life because it's there that our faith shines the brightest. And that's where it can be best seen by others. It's in the storm. So because of that, I encourage you, take courage in those dark times, in the storms. Take courage because God is at work to use your courage to encourage others. So this went on for two weeks. Paul's ship drifted on the open sea out there in the middle of the Mediterranean somewhere. They didn't even know where they were. But the sailors sensed they were approaching land of some kind. So they took soundings and discovered that the depth was getting less and less, so they were moving toward land. Verse 29 says, Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In other words, they had to see. They, they didn't know what was ahead of them. They wanted to see. And then what happens next really almost sounds like something from the Pirates of the Caribbean here because Paul, or Luke describes what's going on on the, sh- on the ship at this point. They're desperate. And so the sailors go to the bow of the ship and they pretend like they're just working with some anchors and ropes and so on. What they were doing was lowering the lifeboat. They were about to abandon, abandon ship. The the crew was about to leave everybody else to to whatever would happen to them, and they were going to save themselves. And Paul sees what's going on. He goes and tells the centurion. The centurion sends his soldiers. They cut the ropes 
and the lifeboat falls into the ocean. They needed those sailors to have any chance, so they thought, of getting to shore. So you see the drama unfolding. You see the tension that's going on here. The storm is raging. The ship is being driven to the rocks. Nearly everything has already been thrown overboard. The sailors are ready to abandon ship. The lifeboat is now gone. And what happens next can only be described as a God moment. Verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Here's our second principle this morning. Your peace can be a source of strength for others. Your peace in the midst of a storm can give strength to others around you. Now, here's Paul. His peace, his calm enables 275 other passengers to stop and to eat and to be strengthened. It almost sounds like a communion service here, doesn't it? Did you catch the wording there? He took the bread and gave thanks to God and broke it. Maybe that's what Paul and Luke and Aristarchus were thinking. The others probably didn't have a clue, but they heard his prayer. Luke says specifically, he prayed in front of them, thanking God for that food. See, Paul's testimony goes on. In the most desperate moment of this journey, when it seems like all hope is lost, Paul simply prays, tells them God's got this under control. And 275 people are encouraged. Have you ever considered how your attitude and reaction to life's crises can be a witness to other people. How we respond to the storms makes a difference. When you have God's peace, and you do, the Bible says, His peace that passes all understanding, right? So we don't understand why we have peace. Others are not going to understand why we have peace. It makes no human sense to have peace in the midst of a storm. But when we do, it's a witness to others. It strengthens others. Let me give you just a few examples of what that might look like. Maybe it's a moment when you just pause to pray for somebody else. You talk to somebody, they're going through a crisis, maybe they're pulling out their hair, don't know what to do, and you say, hey, wait, let me just pray for you. Do you realize in that simple act, just like with Paul on the ship, that prayer of encouragement can strengthen that person. God uses it to strengthen that person in that moment. Now, what could I do? What could I pray? I can't fix this person's problem. No, you don't have to. You pray for them. You thank God. And in that moment, that strengthens that other person. Maybe 
it's a moment that you, where you're experiencing the trial, right? You're going through the storm. And it's that calm assurance that you have with a, a sudden life change or life situation. And others can see that peace and that calm in your life. And they wonder, how could you be calm in this moment? A guy in our neighborhood is part of my neighborhood men's group. A couple months ago, he announced to the group one morning, he said, I lost my job. Didn't see this coming. I lost my job. And all the other guys are like, oh, man, that's terrible. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? They're all nervous for him. And he says, it's okay. God's got this. He didn't. This wasn't a surprise to him. He's going to provide something else. And his calmness, when there should have been craziness, was a testimony to those other men. Maybe... Maybe the situation is courage when a loved one dies. When grief is overwhelming and you experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. Yes, there is grief still, but there's a calmness, there's a peace that only God gives. And what a testimony that is to others seen this, let's use the example again, Mo and Ellie, these past few weeks. Mo lost his wife of 60 plus years. And yes, there's going to be great grief and loss for him. But his faith is as strong as ever. And the peace and the calm that he has, if you've had a conversation with him, you know that. You've seen that. You've heard it in his voice. And that's a testimony. It strengthens others in his family and others who are grieving. Because of his peace. Maybe it's the peace that's evident when you are anticipating a major health event coming up. Tom Ress is one of our elders here at Trinity. He found out a couple months ago that he needed to have heart surgery. The first diagnosis was open heart surgery to replace a couple of repair or replace a couple of valves. It's been through a number of iterations, surgery changed, had to wait a little longer and wait a little longer and more tests and more tests. And in the middle of all this, every conversation I had with Tom, there was peace, not anxiety, peace. And if many of you had those conversations too, last Tuesday, this past Tuesday, Tom had that surgery, came through it well actually released from the hospital a day earlier than they anticipated. Yes, he's still in pain because when the dr drugs wear off, you feel it, but he's doing well. I share these stories because these are just, these are real people, real life examples from our little congregation where the peace of God is evident and it's a faith evidence. And that peace Give strength, courage, and faith to others. Give you one other example of this. I, I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, Tornado Alley. And I remember the drills, the tornado drills. And I went to a little uh, red brick schoolhouse in the school that I went to. And I, when, when we'd get a tornado warning, which happened fairly often, the teachers would calmly and quietly have the class line up march us down the stairs to the basement, where the cafeteria was. They'd put us along the wall of the cafeteria, tell us to get down on our knees, 
put our heads down and cover our heads with our hands. Now, if you're an elementary school kid, that's a little freaky. <laughs> Going down to the basement, hear the sirens, and you're down against the wall. But what I remember is the teachers were so calm, so easygoing, so organized, there was no panic. And that calm gave us as students calm. And this is what we see here, that the peace, the calm of Paul flows out to this whole ship full of people. And it reminds us that God can use your life circumstances to show others His grace at work in you. That's God's grace at work in you. That peace is not from you. This isn't something you just work up. It's not something you pretend. It's not just for show. This is a true peace that comes from God in that moment that becomes a blessing of His grace to others. You see, again, you know as well as I do, God could have prevented this storm completely, right? God could have given Paul safe, clear, easy passage, the right winds, the right currents, everything, gotten him to Rome in a jiffy. Or in the middle of the storm, he could have suddenly calmed the storm. Jesus did that. God could have done that in that moment. Suddenly no storm. But he didn't. Because God's purpose was to use Paul's testimony in and through the storm. And it's such a lesson for us because so often we just want the storm to stop. We're praying, God, calm the storm, give me easy waters. We need to think about how God may want to use us in the storm. Because your storm, hear this, your storm may be someone else's salvation. They will see and hear your testimony in the storm, and it could lead to their faith and salvation. There's a popular Christian song by Scott Crepain written some years ago. It says this, sometimes he calms the storm, speaking of God, sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. We always want the storm to stop, but sometimes what we need is God's calm in the midst of the storm. God's purpose may be for you to sail through a storm to allow His peace in you to give strength to others. Certainly is the way He used Paul. So what happened next? Let's finish the story. Verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground, and the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, and he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Just as God had promised Paul, right? There's the power of God, the promise of God. Yes, the ship was lost, but all lives were saved, just as God said it would happen. But I want you to see something else here. This is kind of a side note, but I think it's important. The soldiers, as you heard me read, planned to kill all the prisoners so they couldn't escape. Now, you say, that sounds, that's vicious. But here's what, in Rome, as a Roman soldier, if you lost your prisoner... You had to pay that penalty yourself. 
the punishment would come on you. This was serious. So they were not going to let those prisoners escape. That's why they were planning to kill them on the spot. But this Roman centurion had been so impacted by Paul that for Paul's sake, he stopped that plan and none of the prisoners were killed. Now, why? Why would he do that? Why would he want to save Paul's life? Let me just think back through with me a couple of things we saw in this chapter. Verse 3, he would have seen Paul with his friends at Sidon and how they came around him. Must be something special about this guy. Look at the way those people are treating him. Verse 9 is when Paul warned them not to go on. And he didn't know Paul well enough at that point to take his advice. I think he learned later on that he should have. But surely he looked back and respected Paul for that. Verse 21, he saw Paul's response and the faith that he had in God, and that must have struck this centurion. Verse 31, he must have felt indebted to Paul. Paul revealed the plan of the mutiny, and they were able to stop the mutiny because Paul came forward. And then verse 33 that we read a moment ago, he must have been moved by Paul's peace and encouragement to everybody on board that ship. Paul's example, even as a prisoner, so impressed this Roman centurion that he chose to spare Paul's life and the lives of all the other prisoners on his behalf. He trusted that Paul would keep them together. And they did. They stayed there, which means Paul probably also had the respect of those other prisoners. They didn't run off or, in this case, swim off. Here's the third principle. Your reputation can be a source of blessing for others. Like Paul, your reputation, a reputation of faith, of trust in God, just the way you live out your Christianity can be a source of blessing for others. What is that reputation? What do people see in you, think of you, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace? What is that reputation? And what of your faith is part of that reputation? Does it inspire respect of others? Are others blessed because they see in you an honest, trustworthy, God-fearing person? Does that impact others? When I was on the faculty at Toccoa Falls College, the music director there had a great reputation for his musical ability and skills. I believe he's even still there now, and he... uh, so it was such to the degree that even down in Atlanta, he was well-known and trusted that he, if he brought a musical group, that would be good. And, and so he was given invitations to bring choirs to major sporting events. Like I found this picture of the men's choir from Toccoa Falls singing the national anthem at a Braves game in what used to be SunTrust Park. I had the privilege while I was there one, one of those years to go with this men, same men's chorus to downtown Atlanta to an Atlanta Hawks basketball game, sing the national anthem, and stay and enjoy the game. Why did I have that privilege, that blessing? Well, because of the reputation of the choir director. And see, in this just simple way, there's, there's an extent at which our reputation, our spiritual reputation, can have this trickle-down blessing effect on other people around us. When you faithfully represent the Lord Jesus by your life attitudes and your actions, those blessings can fall on others. In Paul's case, it saved their lives. So when the storms of life come your way, just a review here, your faith can inspire encouragement and hope. Your peace can inspire strength. 
and your reputation can inspire blessing. So how are you riding out the storms? You know, Paul's storm story reminds me of another one. Actually, there are a number of storm stories in the Bible. They're all fascinating to me, but this one maybe parallels the most. It was about a prophet who boarded a ship in Joppa and headed for Tarshish. Remember that story, the story of Jonah, which would have been fine except that God had told him to go to Nineveh, the opposite direction, and to preach there. Jonah was running away from God. And so there too, like with Paul's case, a violent storm threatened to break up the ship And like in Paul's case, the sailors are throwing the cargo over to lighten the ship. But unlike Paul, who engaged in the midst of the storm, Jonah was asleep in the bottom of the ship. The sailors cast lots to see who was responsible for this calamity, and sure enough, the lot fell on Jonah. And he admitted he was running from God, and they asked him, what should we do? And instead, in that moment of praying for them, praying to God telling them about God, Jonah says, throw me overboard. The storm will stop. They didn't want to do that. They fought that. They tried to do more. They couldn't do it, and so they threw Jonah overboard, and the storm stopped. And God had his own way of saving Jonah, but in this comparison, the book of Jonah, the prophet is actually the cause of the storm, right? It comes because of his disobedience, and everybody else on that ship pays for his disobedience. Whereas in Paul's case, he is obeying God's call to go to Rome. He's going where he's supposed to go, and he still has a storm. But in Paul's case, instead of avoiding, he engages He speaks about his faith in God. He prays for the welfare of his shipmates because his was not a storm of discipline. Paul's was a storm of discipleship. He didn't blame God like Jonah did. He thanked God for the bread. And he didn't leave his shipmates wondering what to do next like Jonah did. He encouraged them. He gave them hope. He gave them direction. So when we go through our storms of life, and we all will, some of you are in a storm right now, we should ask three questions, a few questions. First, for the Jonah-Paul comparison, are, am I running from God or am I running to Him? In the midst of my storm, am I running from Him or to Him? And is the storm that I'm in brought on by my own disobedience, because sometimes we have those storms too, right, that we bring on ourselves? Or is this a storm that God has provided to test and display my faith? Will I try to sleep through it like Jonah did, meaning just ignore it, try to let it just pass over my head? Or will I lead out with peace and hope and assurance like Paul did? Will my response in the storm inspire doubt in others or faith in others? Will I weather my storms like Jonah or like Paul? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you're with us in the storm. And we've sung about that and said that. And we know that the strength that Paul showed was because you were with him, speaking to him, assuring him, giving him that peace and faith in the midst of the storm. And Lord, that's what we desperately need. And, And we pray for that kind of help from you. 
But Lord, we also pray that we would then be willing to demonstrate that, that, that others would see our faith in the midst of the storm, see the peace that we have, that our reputation as Christ followers would then have an impact of blessing on others, encouragement to others, providing strength to others because of the way we weather our storms. Oh, Lord, we pray that today, I pray, Lord, if anybody in this room is going through a storm, they would see how you can use that for your glory and for their good. And I pray that it would be a faith-strengthening storm for them. And Lord, in the midst of it, may we always recognize and remember that our help comes from you and you alone. May the storms drive us to you and not away from you. This I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.